0: This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others, and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. Hey, friends, welcome to the Grace Enough podcast. I am your host, Amber Cullum. Each episode, I sit down with a guest to discuss their life journey and how the grace of God has impacted them along the way. After listening to today's episode, I hope you are encouraged that God can use you right now in the midst of your day-to-day life. Yes, it requires daily surrender and trust, but we must remember His grace is enough. As we approach Easter, I thought it would be nice to chat with a few guests who have spent large portions of their lives studying and teaching God's word, specifically the events of Jesus' final week leading up to his crucifixion and resurrection. The week leading up to Resurrection Sunday is known as Holy Week. Many of us have read the gospel accounts of Jesus' final days on earth. We have heard various sermons preached, and we may have done some in-depth Bible studies, But we know the Bible is so rich and so deep that there are new truths simply waiting to be discovered by even the seasoned Jesus follower. As I chat with Dr. Chuck Quarles today, that is my hope. I hope you experience an aha moment, a moment of discovery or greater understanding of Jesus' final days that ultimately draw you into a closer walk with him. Listen to what Dr. Quarles has to say. About the little seat you often see portrayed on crosses in Christian art.
1: Sometimes in Christian art, you see a little seat for the crucified victim to sit on. Well, no, that, that wasn't to comfort them in their suffering. It wasn't to enable them to rest as they had to raise and lower their body to breathe. It was actually called the sedile in Latin, and it's an instrument of torture. Uh, Some of the early church fathers like Justin Martyr actually describe it as a horn like projection, uh, like a stake that was sharpened and protruding from the cross. So that as you raised and lowered your body, attempting to breathe on the cross, if you didn't arch your back in a very awkward position, you were going to constantly be tearing your flesh against that sharpened stake. It was so brutal that in all of our accounts of thousands and thousands of crucifixions, Josephus tells us after the Jewish war, so many Jewish men were crucified, not just men, women and children, too, that there was no longer wood in all of Palestine to make any crosses. And there was no room on the public roads to put another cross up.
0: I want to take the chance to welcome Dr. Quarles to the show. Thank you so much for being here tonight.
1: My pleasure.
0: Well, go ahead and jump in and just introduce yourself to our listeners and tell us a little bit about your family and what you do.
1: All right. Uh, First, feel free to call me Chuck. I am research professor of New Testament and Biblical Theology at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary in Wake Forest, North Carolina. Uh, I have another related role, uh, Charles Page Chair of Biblical Theology, but I have the privilege of spending uh, all of my time now teaching students the Word of God and also researching and writing. I love both of those. Glad I can do them both and glad that I'm completely out of administration now. Uh, I am married to Julie. Uh, We just celebrated our 30th wedding anniversary.
0: That's awesome. And we
1: have three adult kids, Rachel, Hannah, and Josh. And Rachel is married to another Josh named Josh Ingan, <laughs> who is a Ph.D. student here under me at Southeastern. And so that couple and their three kids are all close, and we love to spend time with them.
0: That's so awesome. So they already have three kids, and your other two then have none.
1: No, they're both single
0: but they're in the same area as you you were telling yeah. me earlier. Oh, it's just such a gift. Well, it as is. we Oh, go ahead. Sorry.
1: No, I was just agreeing it is a gift.
0: Yes, it is. Uh, we love
1: to spend time with our grandkids, Eloise, Leland, and Theodore.
0: Oh my they goodness. They are very so
1: precious sweet. to us.
0: So sweet. Now, how old are they?
1: 5 three, and about nine months.
0: Oh yeah, mama's busy, so she's glad grandma and grandpa are around.
1: Yeah, I think so.
0: <laughs> I know so. I've been there. I have a nine, seven, and four-year-old, and we, when we lived in Tampa and we were close to my in-laws, I was just like, thank you, Jesus. I don't know how people do it without it. I mean, you manage, but it's a lot harder. Yeah. I always like to ask my guests, how did you come to know Jesus? Tell us a little bit of your faith journey.
1: Sure. I'm very happy to do that. I grew up in a Christian home uh, and attended church, you know, uh, from conception on. And I actually made a commitment when I was five years old and was baptized then. But I struggled with issues of faith all through my teenage years. Mm -hmm. And there were actually several times in my teens when I uh, went forward to my pastor and said, I don't think I'm saved and was sent back uh, being told, you're too good a kid not to really be a Christian. Mm. But the truth is, I heard a lot of good Baptist moralism in the churches that I attended, but didn't hear the gospel clearly articulated in a way that I could understand. Now, maybe it was being done and my heart was just so hard that it wasn't sinking in. But it wasn't until I was in my late teens that I heard some of the essential doctrines of the gospel, like the deity of Christ, uh, the fact that his death on the cross was the only way our sins could be forgiven and Mm -hmm. so forth. And that was when I trusted Christ as my God, Savior, and King. Mm -hmm. I was actually dating the daughter of a pastor, and he cared enough about me to sit me down and ask me what I now know are called the diagnostic questions. And one of those was, If you died today and stood before God in judgment and he said, why should I let you into heaven? What would your answer be? And my sad response was, well, I've been baptized. I try to keep the commandments. I try to fulfill the golden rule. And he gently but firmly said, and who is the subject of each of those statements? Mm I, I, I. So who are you really trusting? For your salvation and forgiveness of sin, Jesus Christ or yourself. Mm. And that began the process of exploring what Scripture taught about the way of salvation and uh, coming to an understanding of salvation by grace mm-hmm. rather than through our efforts. Oh,
0: goodness, that's a good word because isn't that still so often the problem, moral moral changes people often will say, oh, well, that's what leads to salvation, but it's really not. So we're going to talk today about Easter. And just to start off very simple, tell our listeners, what is Holy Week? What does it entail?
1: Well, Holy Week uh, begins, it's the final week of Jesus' life leading up to his crucifixion and resurrection. And it really begins with what we call His triumphal entry, Uh Palm Sunday. Uh, The Lord Jesus has come with a group of Galilean pilgrims down from Galilee on the other side of the Jordan River. Uh Then from Jericho, he's crossed the Mount of Olives. And at Bethphage, he sends a couple of his disciples to go and find a donkey colt and the colt's mother. And then he rides. Uh, the donkey colt that's never been ridden before, showing his mastery over the animal kingdom into the city of Jerusalem as the crowds cheer, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And all of this is in remarkable fulfillment of some really important Old Testament prophecies. And Christ's fulfillment of those prophecies tells us tons about his nature and his identity.
0: You're jumping right into my next question about just how he does ride into the city, and that is one of the very first parts of Holy Week. And, you know, you're teaching all the time students who are passionate about learning God's Word or they want to do something with it. But there's so many of us who are believers who are sitting out in the pews or studying God's Word on our own, and we miss those things because we don't always have somebody pointing all of those details out what are some of the minute details of when Jesus rides in on this donkey which is actually a colt? Um, what are some of the prophecies that are fulfilled or some of the minute details that you would really point out to your students
1: well this is an example of Jesus fulfillment of a prophecy that encapsulates a prophecy The prophecy that's at the forefront of Jesus' triumphal entry is Zechariah 9, where the daughter of Zion is told that her king will come uh, riding on a donkey on the colt of a donkey. Mm -hmm. The ancient Jews widely recognized this as a messianic prophecy, and it is if you define Messiah properly, Uh, because the reality is in the context of Zechariah 9, The prophet's talking more about simply the coming of a human king who is a descendant of David and who will reign over the people of Israel. Uh, If you look at Zechariah 9 in context, you'll see that the king whose coming is foretold is actually Yahweh himself, Mm. Jehovah. Uh, Let me give you a few examples of this. Okay. King of Zion is not a reference to a mere human king, but to a divine king. And a number of texts support that, like Psalm 48, where Yahweh is praised as the king of Zion. And remember, it's daughter Zion who is told, your king is coming to you riding on the colt of the donkey. Similarly, Psalm 149.2 identifies the king of the children of Zion as, quote, Israel's maker. Uh, the creator who has founded the people of Israel. Isaiah 24, 23 says that the Lord of hosts, a reference to Yahweh using the Hebrew divine name, uh-huh. will reign as king on Mount Zion. So Zion's king is Jehovah. Another important text is Jeremiah 8, 19 that uses synonymous parallelism where a phrase is given, and then a phrase with an identical meaning follows right after that. Is the Lord no longer in Zion, her king not within her? So the Lord is the king, and her is Zion in the parallelism. And not only do we see these references to Yahweh as the king of Zion, scattered all over the teachings of the prophets and the Psalms, We see it very prominently here in the context of Zechariah 9. In Zechariah 9.9, we read that the king has salvation. And then in 9.16, we're told who brings salvation to them. The Lord their God will save them on that day. Then Zechariah 9.16 refers to a diadem, a crown of royalty that the Lord himself wears. Then Zechariah 9, 9 through 17, describes God as the great warrior who fights in behalf of his people, who leads them in battle. Those were the things the ancient kings did. And then perhaps most importantly, Zechariah fourteen nine says, On that day, Yahweh will become king over all the earth, Yahweh alone and his name alone. Then Zechariah fourteen six goes on to say, After this king's coming to Zion, that all nations will flock to the city of Jerusalem mm. to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, mm. Yahweh, the God of Israel. So this isn't Jesus just fulfilling a prophecy about a royal descendant from the line of David. Jesus is fulfilling a description of Jehovah God himself. Uh, That shouldn't surprise us, especially in the Gospel of Matthew, because Matthew told us from the very beginning that this baby born in Bethlehem is the Emmanuel. He is God with us. And that great doctrine of the deity of Christ, which sadly I didn't come to understand until later in life, is all over the pages of the New Testament. And it's especially prominent in Jesus' triumphal entry.
0: Yeah, it is so interesting because there are so many of these little details that as you begin to unpack them does help so much with just understanding how, I mean, like Christ really is who he says he is. And so that's part of the reason why, you know, I really wanted to sit down with you and I have a couple of other episodes coming up as well, because it's just you, it's, it takes so long to learn all of it unless you're in an academic setting. So I'm grateful um, that you pointed that out, because honestly, I mean, I had not paid attention to that at all. So thank you.
1: Well, I, I love this. I love to see the glory of Christ on every page of the scripture.
0: That's right. And
1: and it is there when we properly understand it.
0: Yeah, well, and as the week progressed, Jesus continues. I mean, he clears out the temple. He speaks and t- or teaches all kinds of parables and the temple courts and just different places. And so... Kind of describe to us what that atmosphere is like from the perspective of the times. Like what all was going on? What was the significance and what was the atmosphere surrounding Jesus during this time?
1: Well, when Jesus moves from Galilee to Judea, and particularly to this brief season of ministry in Jerusalem, uh, he is moving from a group of people that have respected him and his ministry, viewed him at the very least, as the prophet. And he's called that several times in uh, these two chapters of Matthew. Uh, Sometimes even the Messiah, when he's called the son of David during the triumphal entry, that is a distinctly messianic title. So there are some in the group who have a relatively clear understanding of who Jesus is, not full understanding, but relatively clear, at least of some aspects of his identity. But When he begins to engage the chief priests and the scribes Mm -hmm. and the Pharisees, he encounters increasing hostility. They adamantly reject the claims that he makes about himself. And Christ goes through a series of teachings and events that warn these leaders and the nation of Israel of the consequences of its rejection. Mm. And that occurs in so many ways in these chapters. A couple of examples would be Christ's teaching in the parable of the wicked tenants. The parable of the wicked tenants portrays the kingdom of God as a vineyard, right. God is the vineyard owner, and God entrusts the vineyard to tenants who essentially rent the vineyard. And they are to repay the vineyard owner with the fruits of the vineyard. And we already know what the fruits signify, because throughout the Gospel of Matthew, fruit has described our speech and our behavior and our character that displays the repentance of our hearts. Mm -hmm. John the Baptist had said back in chapter 3 that people should manifest the fruits of repentance— he had warned that when the Messiah came, he was going to be like an axeman who was ready to chop down any tree that didn't bear good fruit. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jesus emphasized the importance of bearing the fruit of good works and good words in the Sermon on the Mount. That's everywhere in the Gospel of Matthew. So we know the fruits in the parable are good words and good deeds that display genuine repentance. Mm-hmm. But when the season of the harvest comes, where the fruits are to be given to the vineyard owner, God, the tenants refuse to do that. So he begins to send groups of servants. These servants represent the Old Testament prophets and the even one, at least, of the New Testament era, John the Baptist. Uh, they're called servants of God repeatedly in the Old Testament, and they called the people to repentance to manifest the fruits of repentance, but they refuse. And, of course, they not only refuse the authority of the servants, the prophets, they ultimately kill them. And Matthew gives us a little detail that the other Gospels don't. One of their means of execution, he says, was stoning. That's important because later on in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is going to weep over the city of Jerusalem, And say, You killed the prophets and stoned those who were sent to you. And that confirms that these servants who are stoned in the parable represent the prophets. Now, at that point in the parable, we then expect the vineyard owner, God, to send his mercenaries to take those guys out. Right. But shockingly, instead, he sends his son. And in the parables, whenever you encounter an unrealistic detail, we know that that has allegorical or symbolic significance. It doesn't just make the storyline work. It's there to teach us an important spiritual lesson. And this is clearly an example of that. Uh, The son is obviously a reference to the one of whom the father said at the baptism, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. He repeated the same statement. At Jesus's transfiguration, the son is the Lord Jesus. And shockingly, they kill him, too, saying, this is the heir, we'll murder him, and the vineyard will be ours. And then the Lord Jesus asked the Jewish leaders, what is the vineyard owner going to do to these tenants? And they correctly say, and there's a wordplay in the Greek text here, he will badly destroy these bad men, or he will terribly ruin these terrible men. Uh, the wordplay shows that this is an act of poetic justice where they get exactly what, what their sins deserve. But of course, the irony is the statement self-condemning because these Jewish leaders are the wicked tenants. Right. Uh, they are the ones who are responsible for the murder of the prophets and ultimately the crucifixion of God's own Son. And so they have indicted themselves, they have condemned themselves in the same manner that we see uh, the prophet Nathan relating to King David in his Old Testament parable. And sure enough, AD 70, destruction will come. Uh, the city of Jerusalem will be devastated and it is the consequence of their rejection of the Lord Jesus.
0: Wow. I I can't help but be like, you know, as Jesus is teaching this, how much are they really getting his disciples? And I mean, I know it goes on to say that they somewhat understood, but not fully. Right. And you said that. Yeah. But I mean, I get it. I think about being a disciple sitting there, and I, I, I don't think I would have gotten it. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Well, the shocking thing is the Pharisees and scribes mm-hmm. did. At the end of the parable, it says they realized that Jesus was talking about them. Mm-hmm. And that's when they began to plot even more feverishly to put the Lord Jesus to death. Wow.
0: Yeah, that's true.
1: I the mean, only thing that's preventing it is Jesus' popularity with the crowds.
0: Wow. You know, speaking to that is we move on through holy week and he has now gone up into the upper room to have passover meal his last meal with his disciples again there's so many details there that we could jump into but what are what's one or two of the details there that are just so significant to proving that this jesus truly is the messiah
1: a very good question uh, the Last Supper is an event that is much uh, richer than most Christians understand. Mm-hmm. When we celebrate the reenactment of the Last Supper that we call communion or the Eucharist, the Lord's right. Supper, our focus is properly on Jesus' death as an atoning sacrifice. Mm-hmm. But while that's a proper focus, it shouldn't be our singular focus because Jesus says a lot more about himself and what he accomplishes for us through a sacrificial death than just that our sins will be forgiven. Hmm. Uh, there are several elements in the Lord's Supper. The first element we might want to discuss would be the bread. Right. And Jesus describes it as this is a picture of my body, which is given for you. The reference to the giving of a body is clearly a sacrificial reference, and it is portraying Jesus' death as like the atoning sacrifices of the Old Testament. Mm. Obviously, one of the things that the Jews ate during the Passover was a part of the Passover lamb, Mm -hmm. that lamb that had died so that the wrath of the destroyer would pass over the households of the Israelites during the plague of the death of the firstborn in Egypt. And Jesus is saying that my death will be like the death of that Passover lamb. Because of my sacrificial death, the wrath of God will pass over my people. They will escape the wrath of God that they rightly deserve for their sins. And there are large numbers of Old Testament texts that portray Jesus' death as an atoning sacrifice. Uh, Probably one of our favorites is going to be Isaiah 53. Mm -hmm. It says, surely uh, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, the Hebrew text says. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that would bring us peace was imposed on him by his scourgings. We are healed. Mm -hmm. Uh, We like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone into his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Mm -hmm. And several times in Jesus' teaching, he has identified himself as that suffering servant of isaiah and that fits with this imagery of the passover lamb Mm -hmm. making it clear that the bread signifies that jesus provides the forgiveness of sins through his death on the cross that much we've all come to grips with i think The, the thing we may have overlooked is the symbolism of the cup When Jesus holds up the cup, we seem to assume that that's just about the forgiveness of sins, too. But it's actually about a lot more than that. Sacrifices in Old Testament times had different purposes. Some sacrifices were atoning sacrifices, but there were also sacrifices that were made when a covenant was established between two people or two parties. We see that in the covenant with Abraham. We see that in the Mosaic covenant where the bullocks are slain and the blood is sprinkled. Behold the blood of the covenant. In fact, the Hebrew phrase for making a covenant literally means to cut a covenant because making a covenant required the cutting of a sacrificial animal. And when Jesus holds up the cup, he says uh, that this cup symbolizes the blood of with which he enacts the new covenant. He actually uses the language that Moses used when he enacted the Old Testament, the Mosaic covenant, the covenant of the law, behold the blood of the covenant. All right. Why is that so significant? Yeah. Well, Jesus is enacting the new covenant, and the Gospel of Luke explicitly describes it as such. It's not just the blood of the covenant, but it's the blood of the new covenant. And that takes us back to a couple of very important prophecies. Jeremiah 31, where God says, I'm going to make a new covenant with my people. It's not going to be like the old one that they broke. He says, I'm going to write my law on their hearts so that no longer is God's law just going to be some external standard that they strive in vain to fulfill, mm. it's going to be something that God has placed within them so that it is their nature. It's just who they are to live a life of righteousness and holiness. Wow! And Ezekiel described this same covenant as the covenant of peace in Ezekiel 36 and 37. And he described it in slightly different terms, but it means the same thing. God says, I will put my spirit within you, and he will move you to keep my commandments and fulfill my ordinances. And the idea is God is going to transform us from the inside out in the new covenant so that we're capable of a righteousness that people under the Mosaic law were never capable of. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Well, so that leads me, I'm kind of nerding out a little bit, and I could probably just, I want to ask so many questions. But when I think about that, he transforms us from the inside out. And see, this is kind of going off on a tangent a little bit. That leads into that. It's a lifelong process, though, correct?
1: Well, it's a lifelong process, but it's one uh, that begins in a very dramatic way at conversion. When we repent of our sins and we believe in Christ as our God, Savior and King, we experience what Christ described in the Gospel of John as the new birth, Mm -hmm. or what the Apostle Paul and the Gospel of Matthew describe as the miracle of new creation. Mm -hmm. So at that very moment, we cease to be the people we used to be. That's why Paul can say, If any person is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, the new has come. come. Now, we need to clarify that in the King James, it says "Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That verse used to really, really bother me as a young Christian because I thought I've experienced (laughs) newness, but not everything is new. There, yeah. There's still some oldness that I'm wrestling with. The, the fact is, though, our oldest and best Greek manuscripts say, at the way I quoted it first. Okay. If any person is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, the new has come. So the new has arrived. But Paul doesn't go so far as to say everything is new in us. Mm. He makes it clear in many statements in his letter that everything isn't new.
0: We've yeah, been I mean, the whole statement of, right, I do what I don't want to do, right, and I don't right. do what I do want to do.
1: Right. So we've Amen got this that. <laughs> battle. Yeah. We've got this battle between flesh and spirit, and that battle won't be over until resurrection and glorification. Right. And Paul gives us the good news in First Corinthians 15 that our resurrection bodies will be what he describes as spiritual bodies. And spiritual there doesn't mean ghost-like or immaterial. It means perfectly adapted to the Spirit's control so that the battle between flesh and Spirit is over, and our flesh doesn't long for anything that the Spirit doesn't want.
0: Mm. Wow.
1: Yeah. That... Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. (laughs) Yeah.
0: For real. Well, that's the thing. I hate to just keep, you know, skip over stuff and rush ahead. But just because of time, we have to. And so I had come up with a couple other questions and loved that you reached back out to me and said, I really do want to make sure we get to the crucifixion and the resurrection. And so I'm not even going to ask a question there. I just want to know, what do you feel like we need to know? What is the common you know, not, maybe not common, but what is, again, something that we as believers so often miss in the crucifixion story and the resurrection story?
1: I think that we have seen enough depictions of crucifixion and Christian art that we uh, have become calloused
0: Absolutely. toward
1: what Christ endured. And, the reality and death is, in
0: general, right? Like yeah. any kind of death in our culture has just become so normative to see it almost, that even the brutality of just something simple, and then to think about it in a crucifixion, like it was so much more Yeah, brutal.
1: It was indescribable. Uh, Josephus, the
0: mm-hmm.
1: first century Jew, who was actually a contemporary of the Apostle Paul, had witnessed a number of crucifixions. And in his history, he describes crucifixion as, quote, the most wretched of all ways of dying is beyond anything that we could imagine. I am tempted to give a vivid description. Go for it. uh, But I will warn you, I've actually had uh, people faint as they reflect on the real brutality of the torture. But the crucifixion began, of course, with Roman scourging. We probably heard that Roman scourging was limited to 40 lashes minus one, that's actually not true. Uh, that's yeah. true of Jewish synagogue floggings, but it's not true of Roman scourging. And they're two very different things. Uh, Roman scourging had no limit imposed, but the brutality of the torturer. And there were many people who were executed simply beneath the lash. Josephus described some of these. The instrument used in scourging of the Roman flagellum was a wooden handle with several strands of leather coming out of it, that's bad enough because the physicists tell us that just the crack of a bull whip is caused not by leather, slapping leather, but by the tip of the whip, breaking the sound barrier and creating a mini sonic boom. Mm. And when the tip of the whip is traveling at that speed, it is devastating to human flesh. Mm. But the Romans tipped the leather straps of the flagellum with pieces of bone, glass, and metal that were both sharpened and barbed, And the weight caused the lash to pound the flesh like little mini hammers. Uh, the sharpening caused it to lacerate the flesh, mm-hmm. and the, the barbs caused it to cling to the flesh. And when the torturer ripped back to free the scourge from the victim's flesh, it would slice the flesh into ribbons. This wasn't only done on the back and shoulders, but also the chest and stomach. Mm. And Josephus describes his own eyewitnessed accounts of scourging, where one victim is scourged so brutally that their uh, spine and uh, rib cage is exposed, another where the vital organs are exposed, and another who was scourged so brutally that all of the flesh that held his bowels intact were ripped away, and he was literally disemboweled beneath Mm. the scourge. Yeah,
0: that's going into muscle and all of it.
1: Yeah, scourging alone uh, was unthinkable. And then after the scourging, this crucifixion, where the person is ultimately, I'll be brief, uh, for the sake of time, nailed through the wrist and through the ankles to the cross, almost always in some kind of contorted position. The ancient descriptions of crucifixion say that they like to do that because it enhanced the torture. It made it more difficult for a person to breathe as they mm-hmm. were tied in all kinds of ways to the cross. And it also helped humiliate the prisoner. Although we typically see really tall crosses in Christian art, the the Romans were smart and they didn't make unnecessary work for themselves. They kept the crosses pretty short Hmm. so that a crucified victim was only a a few feet off the ground, which enabled the passersby to strike the victim, spit on the victim, uh, and which meant, and we have specific descriptions of this in the ancient sources, animals to feast on their legs, birds of prey feast on their flesh. When the film The Passion of the Christ by Mel Gibson came out, many were outraged, saying that was gratuitous violence, that crucifixion wasn't nearly that bad. But after reading countless ancient descriptions of crucifixion, I'm convinced, no, it was actually worse than what Gibson depicted.
0: And that was... Tough to sit through.
1: It was. Just to give one other example. Sometimes in Christian art, you see a little seat for mm-hmm. the crucified victim to sit on. Well, no, that that wasn't to comfort them in their suffering. It wasn't to enable them to rest as they had to raise and lower their body to breathe. It was actually called the sedile in Latin, and it's an instrument of torture. Uh, Some of the early church fathers, like Justin Martyr, actually describe it as a horn-like projection, uh, like a stake that was sharpened and protruding from the cross, so that as you raised and lowered your body, attempting to breathe on the cross, if you didn't arch your back in a very awkward position, you were going to constantly be tearing your flesh against that (laughs) sharpened stake. It was so brutal. Mm-hmm. that in all of our accounts of thousands and thousands of crucifixions, Josephus tells us after the Jewish war, so many Jewish men were crucified, not just men, women and children, too, that there was no longer wood in all of Palestine to make any crosses, oh and there goodness. was no room on the public roads to put another cross up.
0: Such evil.
1: Yes, in all of those thousands and thousands of accounts of crucifixion, we have no one who ever survived an uninterrupted crucifixion. Uh, what do I mean by uninterrupted crucifixion? Well, we have one episode in Ancient Sources where Josephus himself is riding down the road with Roman troops, and he sees three of his friends crucified on the roadside. Wow. And he tearfully begs the emperor to intervene. And the emperor orders them to be taken down and given the best medical care. And the medical doctors and surgeons were the best trauma doctors in all the world because they were accustomed to helping people who were dehydrated, who had lost limbs, enormous amounts of blood and so forth. But even after the best doctors in the ancient world attended to those three men who were taken down while still alive from the cross, only one of them survived. The other two Mm -hmm. could not be saved. When crucifixion was administered to completion, nobody survived, Uh, especially in a circumstance like Jesus' crucifixion, where it is ensured that he is dead by a trained executioner taking the lance and spearing his side and then The mixture of clear serum and blood flows Mm -hmm. out, showing that the pericardium had been ruptured and then a chamber of the heart had also been ruptured. Absolutely impossible to survive that. And the reason it's important to know that is because one of the skeptical dismissals of Jesus' resurrection, it's what's known as the swoon theory. Well, Jesus was weakened by crucifixion. Mm -hmm. He kind of fainted on the cross, but he was still alive when he was buried And so he revives three days later in the coolness of the limestone tomb. And when he walks out of the tomb, everybody thinks he's risen from the dead. That is ridiculous. Right. Uh, When you understand ancient crucifixion and do justice to all of the hundreds of descriptions we have of it in the ancient text, when you account for the archaeological evidence that we have of crucifixion, there's no way that it was survived.
0: Wow. I just get dumbfounded sometimes when I start trying to process all that really happened, you know, it's just, it's a lot. And I mean, it leaves me speechless at times for
1: sure. Yeah. And of course, what's most breathtaking, uh, what really robs us of words is when we look beyond the physical aspects of Jesus suffering to the spiritual ones when he cries, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, when he takes our guilt and bears the wrath of the Holy Father against our sin in our place, mm-hmm. that is suffering uh, that I can't even begin to explain. Mm-hmm. Paul describes it in terms of Deuteronomy, where cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree. And Jesus literally bore the curses of the covenant that are described at the end of the book of Deuteronomy because of the way we had broken the covenant, estranged from the father, alienated from the father, forsaken by the father. There's some theologians who object to that and say, well, Jesus must have been speaking out of his mind he was in such great pain so dehydrated that he was delir- delirious and he was speaking nonsense surely the father had not turned his back on him uh, but oh no Christ mm. uh, knew exactly what he was saying he's expressing the fact that he's bearing our guilt
0: right and the
1: consequences of our sin
0: yeah Before we close out here, and this is kind of putting you on the spot, but a friend of mine had asked, you know, during your Easter conversations, ask some people what their thought is on the teaching of what, maybe not the teaching, but what happened to Jesus when we hear, you know, after he died and he was in the tomb, During that time, there's so many various teachings. I shouldn't say so many, but, you know, some think that he descended to hell. Um, I mean, what is your thought on that?
1: I think during the three days that his body was in the tomb, uh, he was actually in the presence of the Father and was being exalted by him. I don't believe that he's descending into hell, Uh, uh, as some have argued. And although that's based in some modern Christianity on the Apostles' Creed, that line of the Apostles' Creed is a later addition to it. It's not part of the original form. The great church historian Philip Schaaf in his work on the history of the creeds of Christendom explains that. Okay. So uh, this idea that he descended into hell is based on a misinterpretation of a statement that the Apostle Peter makes in his letters. But what Peter's actually describing is Christ's ascension uh, in which he declares his authority and victory over demonic spirits, not a descent into Gehenna, the realm of the dead, uh, if we mean by that where the wicked are kept and where Satan and his demons are. And one of the reasons that I would say that Jesus is in the presence of the Father in heaven is because when Jesus appears before his disciples in Matthew 28 after his resurrection, he says at that point, all authority has been given me in heaven and on earth. And so a heavenly exaltation has occurred that fulfills what is described in Daniel chapter 7, where the Son of Man appears before the Ancient of Days and he's given power and authority and dominion. So that people of every nation, tribe and tongue should worship him, which incidentally is exactly what the disciples do in that event. Mm-hmm. They worship him. Yes. Daniel chapter seven has been fulfilled. The Lord Jesus has appeared before the throne of the ancient of days and received the glory promised him hundreds of years before in the prophecies of Daniel.
0: Well, thank you so much, Chuck, for sitting down with me and talking with me today. I am really grateful.
1: My privilege. I love to do this.
0: I can't say enough how grateful I am for those of you who faithfully listen to the Grace Enough podcast. I love to hear your thoughts, feedback, and recommendations. You can connect with me over on Instagram at Grace Enough podcast underscore Amber or on Facebook under the same name. During this quarantine, I would like to ask each of you listening to share Grace Enough podcast with a friend. You can share it via text message, email, or on social media. Listeners like you who share the podcast is the best way for the podcast to grow and to encourage others to live out their God-given story with grace and truth. Thanks, friends, and I look forward to connecting with you. Thank you for listening to the Grace Enough podcast.